Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM on Wall Street in downtown Asheville. And Robin Collier, thank you for managing KCEI Cultural Energy Radio in Taos. If you would like to reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I'd also like to remind you that we are sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing chops, you can always join me and my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. All Saturdays, we're always there on Saturday, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time for an hour and 15 minutes of collaborative writing with a with a group of around 30 people now. It's always free and the door is always open and you're always invited. ImaginativeStorm.com for more on that. So today I have a new acquaintance. I met her the other day on a Zoom call. I've asked her to volunteer for a project I'm working on with Nicole Brown and Alan Wolf and Sebastian Matthews. It's a writing retreat project, the Lake Eden Writing Retreat, which is happening in May. And Carolina Quiroga is going to volunteer. She said, I would like to volunteer to help you do things. And the reason I was interested in having Carolina join us is because I learned she's a storyteller. And she's been telling stories professionally now for quite a while. And my life is connected to storytelling and connected to Jonesboro, Tennessee, and connected to East Tennessee State University because I was around when they started the first master's degree in storytelling at East Tennessee State University. And lo and behold, Carolina has her master's in storytelling from guess where? East Tennessee State University. So I'm anxious to learn more. Welcome, Carolina, to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you, James. I'm so happy to be here today. It's such a pleasure to get to know you more and more. So I would love for you to take a free-form approach, a storytelling approach here, and just fill us in, fill me in on your momentum with storytelling and touch on the ETSU, East Tennessee State University experience you had with your master's degree. I'm just curious as I can be. So please tell us something. Well, I'm from Colombia, South America. I actually did not study anything related to storytelling before I came here. I was an engineer, then I was a journalist. I worked in public relations before. When I turned 30, I was wondering what to do with my life, the crisis, right? I started asking to those who were older than me. So, I mean, did you go through this? And most people said they did. And a friend of mine said, well, when I turned 30, of course, I had the crisis and I just divorced. And then I found a random guy and then I had a kid with him. And I was like, well, my crisis isn't that bad. I still, I was wondering, like, I was not where I wanted to be. Like, my soul was telling me, this is fun. You're good at it. But this is not fulfilling what I want to do. For many years, I thought, well, if I go to meditate in Nepal or any place like that, I will find the purpose of my soul and I will know my mission in life and I will go pursue it. I was talking to a friend that we used to call the abuelo, which means grandpa, although he was just maybe 
five to 10 years older than me, but he seemed to have that wisdom to see things clearly. And I told him that once I was done with that job I was doing, I had saved enough money to pack my bags and go to Nepal or any other place similar to it. He he said that was a terrible idea. But then he said, well, don't you like storytelling? And um, at the time I had been doing taking some workshops on storytelling at a different universities. I was at a university called Universidad de San Buenaventura. I was working there. And I met two storytellers, one that was very famous, um, Pedro Mario Lopez. He's a Cuban and that now lives in Colombia. And another one that was pretty much my mentor. His last name is also Lopez. I had been doing some of it and I was enjoying it very much, uh, but I thought no one lives out of storytelling. I mean, in Colombia, what you would do most of the time is gathering these plazas now, Colombia is a technically a tropical country, but we have different climates. So every city has a different climate and it could be cold all year or hot all year. So I lived in a very hot city. So we could gather in these plazas every Saturday or Sunday, and then people would come and gather around the storyteller or the musician, uh, street musician, and then they would pass the hat. I mean, they seem to make some decent money. But I didn't see myself doing that. I mean, I thought it was a lot of hustle. But still, the few times I got to taste it, to be in that plaza, capturing an audience, it was magical, as if I was doing a magic act, and I wanted that. And I had been working in events promoting artists. I was always in the logistics behind the curtain. The more I watched those artists, some were musicians, I was, I want to do that. I want to cast that spell. Eventually, with that conversation with Abuelo, this guy we called Grandpa, he said, well, don't you like storytelling? I heard someone from here went to the United States and did a master's or study. I was like, no one studies to become a storyteller. That's not true. I mean, all the people I know, one day began telling stories outside and they just gave it a try and that's it. And just to prove him wrong, I looked it up and there was a master's in storytelling. So at that point, okay, I guess I'll apply. And if they say yes, then I'll go with that plan. And if they say no, I go with my plan A, which was Nepal and finding my purpose. They said yes, and it was very fast. Everything just happened so fast, which to me eventually meant this was the road to take. This was the, the right choice. I arrived on the second semester during winter, and I've never experienced winter before because I come from Cali, which is hot all year round. And so winter was horrible for me. I remember I came with my dad and my dad had been in Europe before and he had had a taste of snow at some point in his life. And he had lived in colder climates before too. So he he was more, better acquainted, but I wasn't. And the first time I saw the snow, I was horrified. I didn't have that like in the movies where it's like, oh, it's the snow, it's so beautiful. It's the spirit of Christmas. I was just horrified because I was like, this is so horribly cold. I hate it. And I hate to put layers upon layers upon layers. 
and, and walking in the snow and I almost fell. And then my dad started playing with the snow and throwing snowballs at me. And I got even more irritated because I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> Eventually over time, I did have a depression that came with missing everything that I knew family, my friends, missing my music, missing my weather. And everything was so new. I'd never been far from home before. And, and this is when you're already 30. So when you're younger, it's easier for you to, to adapt. But the older you get, you're more set in your ways. And, and for me, it was very hard. And I just wanted to go back. I, bought, I almost bought the tickets twice in a span of three months. But life kept putting people in my way that engaged me in, in in a project here, in dancing here. And I eventually understood that life was telling me, you got to stay, you got to give it a try. This is stuff. Yes, of course, but you're not the only one going through this. One friend eventually, after all that, that I told him the story and I told him how much I struggle with it and English too, because when you come to do a master's in general, when you're coming from a foreign country to study, you have to pass something called a TOEFL. In other universities, there is another proficiency test that is far more complex. But since I was just coming to do storytelling, I was I just had to take the basic one. And it said that my English was pretty good. And when I arrived in Johnson City, Tennessee, my English was not that good. <laughs> and I couldn't understand what they were saying. And they couldn't understand what I was saying. Of course, I came with an accent that was very strong at the time. And, and this was the time when there were some racial tensions, uh, because this is 2012. Later, they just got worse. It was very hard for me to see so many people that didn't look like me, that spoke something that at times I couldn't understand, an accent that I didn't study with, because when you study they present you British English or they present you with the New York English, well, more, more so like the series, friends, more clear English. But these guys were entirely different. And the Appalachian stories and uh, the way they tell stories, it was different. So to me, it was a tremendous cultural shock. And when I told this to my friend, he said, I guess Johnson City was your Nepal. <laughs> I mean, he wrapped it up and to me it was like, Oh, okay. I get it now. And I, I wouldn't change the 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 experience for anything. I, I'm I am where I am, thankfully to that experience and to all the people I met along the way, but also have to learn that people tell stories differently, that there are so many layers to stories that I didn't experience before. Uh, personal stories, which to me was in Colombia, it wasn't a thing. You would do more like comedy type of thing if you're going into the personal stuff, but you wouldn't go into something that is deep and personal that really connects with emotions, feelings that are different from humor. And, and I still sometimes struggle with that now that I've been telling stories for more than 10 years here. I'm trying to shift perspectives and, and where I'm heading because I've been doing mostly traditional tales, um, mostly myths and legends and folk tales. And now I see, looking back, I see that in a way I did that because first of all, <laughs> one of the things that happened to me when I was in Tennessee is that I would ask people, do you know where Colombia is? 
And they mm, they put in Asia, in Africa. And I was like, okay, so I got to do something about this. So that was one of the reasons why I was telling stories from Latin America, just to bring a little bit of education in that aspect. Recently, I began realizing that another reason I was doing that is because that was my comfort zone. Even if the story was in English or I was having to tell it in English, that was my comfort zone. That was still my cultures. Like I may tell stories from Mexico and yeah, I'm not Mexican, but we have a lot in common. Yeah, we are different in some other aspects, but it was easier for me to learn and appreciate their culture faster because we already have commonalities. Whereas in the United States culture, it was still foreign to me. Although Hollywood and all the series and Netflix are bombarding us all the time, when you get to experience it. In my case, I realized there was a lot of differences in the way we treat each other. ETSU did change my life. Johnson City too, and all the people. I felt like the program gave me purpose. I need to educate these people. I need to show them where Mexico is, where Puerto Rico is. I need to show them that they these countries have amazing stories, that their cultures are different, et cetera, et cetera. So ETSU and the program itself helped me narrow what I wanted really to tell because when I arrived, I had no idea. I love telling, but I didn't know what to tell. And one of the things that Delana Reed, which was one of my teachers, and a great friend now, she said, you have to find your voice. And I was, what do you mean? I mean, I do have a voice. Don't you hear me speaking? I don't get it. What, what is my voice? And I realized that a lot of times your voice changes. And so my voice for many years was that avenue of speaking for Latin America speaking for our cultures, helping people connect with their cultures, because sometimes there were, there were people in the audience saying, I'm from Peru, I'm from Argentina, and that story you told just reminded me of, I mean, even if it was like a creepy, spooky story, the person would say, it reminded me of my grandmother, or it reminded me of the times when I would go into these places that Carolina doesn't know those places. But the story showed me those places and helped that person remember those memories of uh, their childhood in Argentina, in Peru. Or maybe they were second generation. They were born here already, but their parents came from somewhere else. And they were like, that's how my mom talks. And that's how my aunt used to talk. And so that was like the voice that I found at the time, uh, a voice of many. And now I mean, I'm trying to find my own voice, the voice of Carolina trying to uh, write and tell personal stories, which is something still kind of new to me. That is something that ETSU also gave me or, or the program because there were people doing that already. I just didn't venture into it because I didn't feel like at the time that's what I needed to do. Uh, but I have many friends from from there and I see them telling personal stories and 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 I'm inspired. And I'm like, yes, I mean, uh, this whole experience definitely changed my life and I wouldn't change it for or trade it for anything. So when you talk about your voice, finding your voice, my mind goes to also to style, to different ways one presents. I wonder if finding the voice could be revised 
to frame the idea of the voice as finding my way into and throughout the territory of my voice. So I already have the voice. I'm now going to explore the territory, my voice and habits, and allow it to expand out. So like, for example, the personal stories versus the stories that you tell from the cultures that you're experiencing. That's an expansion. So talk more about what draws you into the personal stories. What kind of personal story challenges you? What would you like to tell that you haven't told? Thank you for that answer, because I'm still exploring it. Uh, in the first personal stories that I wrote about two years ago, they came out as told tales. And it was so much fun to write them. And it was so much fun to tell them. And part of why I went down that first avenue of personal tales, it was because I was watching Donald Davies. I love the reaction of the audience. I felt like if a person went in feeling sad or maybe in a bad temper or down, at the end from all that laughing, it was all gone. When someone laughs, there's something healing about it that it puts the problem perhaps in perspective or at least it puts them on hold enough to allow that part of your brain to actually breathe and eventually find a good solution or maybe just a pause. And so that was the first avenue I went, told tales, and I still want to write more. I just moved to Asheville six months ago with my husband and I decided, well, if I'm going to write, I probably need to maybe take some workshops, <laughs> maybe get acquainted with people that write. So I took these courses on Creativity Lab and Story Lab or Story Parlor. It forced me to write. And at the time, I was going through a kind of a personal crisis that is kind of resolving at this moment with my mother. That opened so many hidden doors that I just uh, hadn't explored for many years. This idea I had of my mother, I became her defender for so many years, her hero. I realized it wasn't my place to do that, but I didn't know better because I was young. I also reflect back and it's not like I could do anything different. I began constructing this idea about my mother, which is an idea very rooted in what society also tells you, that mothers are saints, mothers are gorgeous, are beautiful, are always dedicated to you, to their children. So you either have this amazing saint, the virgin kind of thing, or you have the stepmother, which is the typical evil lady in the fairy tales, right? You never have something in between. You don't have a virgin that is also can make mistakes, but you don't have an evil doer or Snow White's stepmother uh, being good at times or being vulnerable at times. You just have these polarities of people. Uh, and society keeps making, and religion also stresses it out. That's how you have to be. You have to have no flaws. And and so I had an event early this year where we had a fight, and it was one of the most intense fights. And um, it brought down the curtain to me. And I was able to see my mother as a human, 
not as the saint I had put in a pedestal. And that was to me very revealing, but in a very hurtful way. It was like, that can't be. I mean, did I lie to myself? So I went through all these questions and all that. Eventually in June, I wrote something about how the event had happened. And through the workshops I took, I decided to write about that. Although I could have written about anything else, any other topics. But there was an urge inside me that was saying, write about that and and see what comes out or see if that helps you heal somehow. But what came out uh, was a series of letters that I wrote to my mother on certain different topics where I mostly have questions. I always thought this, but now I'm thinking that maybe you didn't mean that. Or maybe I actually gave you characters that were not yours, mom, because our memories are very fragile. Are very selective. And when you're a child and if you're exposed to any trauma, your mind will try to protect you from it. And so it would discard and it would uh, obscure aspects of a, of a memory. So you would only remember certain things. And then over time, you just keep thinking, oh, that was the person that saved me. And this other person did nothing for me because I don't remember them in the story, right? I don't remember them in that scene. And that was exactly what happened with a memory that I had from my childhood. I couldn't remember my mom being part of it. And I was like, why? Why my memory selected to just push her away? And then eventually I realized I had to talk to my dad. And and he said, well, that's impossible that she wasn't there. Because who stopped the bleeding then? And it was revealing to me. And so I put it in paper. I wrote about it. But then talking to my dad, I realized, oh, I I can't trust my memory. (laughs) We can trust our memory sometimes. Um, So that's kind of good when you ask other people. When I went to present the stories, because we're supposed to have a showcase at the end of every workshop, the stories, maybe the stories or maybe my ego or maybe my feelings, I don't know which one, (laughs) all of them together said, no, you can't present that in first person. Uh, You're not ready to talk in first person. You've been talking in third person all your life. I mean, at least for a span of 10 years in all these performances, because I'm talking always about uh, the hero did this. He did is always third person is them. It's not me. I said to myself, okay, well, I probably cannot handle the I, so I'm going to do it in third person. And I constructed these two stories in third person But at the end, the story kind of deconstructs a little bit and comes out of that mask of a third person or of once upon a time or a long time ago. And I start talking personally to the character in the story. As if the narrator, the narrator comes and starts talking to uh, to that person that was going through all those things in that story, which is my mother. Both stories are about my mother. And her youth, because I have to dig into her youth to understand where her frustrations were coming from, because she sold me on one idea, but at the same time, whenever she was honest and vulnerable, she was able to give me hints of her reality. But then when she was happy and wanted to just 
be the once upon a time she would talk about these gorgeous and amazing memories and how amazing her life had been but then she would give me glimpses it wasn't like that it was actually more like this so she has these contradictions constantly for for many years i just chose the happy one <laughs> I, I ignored the other stuff i made my mother's happy memories prevail so i could build an image of her she could be a model of bravery, could be a model for me of persistence and all that. But then I realized that she had quit many things too. And it is okay. Uh, I didn't need to come and judge her. I realized she's just a human as, as I am, which if she quitted things before, it allows me to quit things now when things are not working for me too. So I don't have to be this hero because I think heroes are overrated in many ways cultures have put this extreme burden on people you gotta be a hero oh you're my hero no I don't want to be your hero no thank you that comes with so many layers of oh, stress I just want to be a human so this whole experience is leading me to explore my personal side which actually comes from many voices because I may think oh this is me my I finally found my voice but in reality, it's also the voices of my mothers and my ancestors, of my father and his ancestors and my brothers and his ancest their ancestors, of my cultures. I believe there's many voices in me and, and they're all trying to come out and I'm just trying to kind of like organize and say, okay, guys, okay, I know you all want to talk. <laughs> you all want to talk. Let's do it in, in an orderly fashion because there's only one mouth. And only two hands to put this together. So let's start with this. And, and so right now I'm working mostly on my mother and my relationship with her and what I'm expected to be as the daughter of this woman that is very appreciated in her community. I feel like when my voice at this point is the voice of many and it continues to be the voice of many, as it was with the myths and legends. But this time is more personal, is more DNA rooted, like more blood rooted, I guess, more skin rooted. Yeah, it's my voice, it's my feelings, but it's theirs too. Because I was given so much from them, either in actions or in words or in the things that were not even said or not even done. The silences that I was given, those are things that were passed down to me as gifts or as the opposite. So I'm trying to see how I connect my voice to their voices. And in a way, I'm able to do justice to that in a way that I'm objective and subjective too at the same time, because it's impossible to be objective all the time. Um, but I don't want to be entirely subjective, which means being maybe probably judgmental about it because the people in my past, those ancestors, and even I, we operated and did things based on the information we had at the time. And maybe we tried to do our best. Maybe we were lazy. Maybe we just couldn't. And that's okay because that's just part of life. So to your question, I feel like my voice is swimming in a sea of many, many voices. And uh, thankfully, I like swimming. And I enjoy very much swimming, 
I, I, I'm trying to work on which ones should come out first and, and eventually the other ones will start lining up and coming to as the other ones start coming out and, and, and reaching ears. So do you have stories that you developed now coming from the writing and they come from the writing and then they turn into stories? So how much of the writing do you bring into the stories or do you have the writing do you have the writing help you to research and then you bring the stories alive from the research that you've done with the writing or do you write the material memorize it and present it i know minton sparks writes her material memorizes it and she has it word for word and some other people do. I think uh, J.L. Callahan did that. He would write the stories and then have them memorized and rehearse them so much you didn't know that he had them memorized. So what approach are you using with that? That's a very good question because even that has is evolving within me. In the beginning, any stories that I was telling, they would come out of from memory. Uh, of course, these were the myths and legends, but I had written them down in my own words, and I had research about them and adapt them. So it was like my adaptation of it, but then it would come out as a, a memory exercise. So much sometimes that it was stressful if I missed a word or, because again, you can't trust your memory sometimes. I even develop ways to rehearse with a lot of noise and, uh, and distractions. So my memory would still be focus and concentrated in in the story but in terms of the personal stories i can only speak for the tall tales of it at this moment because the other ones i've read them aloud i haven't performed them and i still don't know if they want to be performed or if they want to be on a book so i'm letting them figure that out and then let me know but the tall tales they still come out as memory the past couple of years, I decided that I needed to give myself the opportunity to loosen up that tight grip I had on my memory, that it was okay to change words along the way, to change phrases, or to even uh, to listen to my mind and my memory as it switched paragraphs. Because strict Carolina would say, that's not how we wrote it. <laughs> that paragraph is supposed to be the fifth paragraph. It's supposed to go blah, 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 blah. But my mind had chosen to, for some reason, switch it. And then I analyzed and it, it was like, I guess it actually sounds even better. So when I'm doing rehearsals, I am listening to my body and to my mind and um, I'm listening to how she wants to say it and know how the paper is telling me that it was su is supposed to be. Um, so the more I listen to it, the more I'm actually realizing that, oh my gosh, this paragraph, I don't need it. Out. In rehearsal, sometimes I just like, my memory just skips something. Just, Wah. and I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot, I forgot. And then I was like, no. I mean, yes, I forgot, but my mind chose to skip it for a reason. And now that I review it, it's because it's not needed. 
So, okay, okay, I adjust the story. So I'm I'm becoming more flexible adjusting those stories, which takes me back to the whole thing of how are we remember our own stories. You grasp on a store or a story and you hold it tight and as a flag, as a banner for so many years. That's my story. And no one will change it because it's mine. That's how it is. And you tell it and you tell it and it's always the same thing and it never evolves. And what I'm learning with this process is that stories evolve. They are, they are sentient beings and they want to evolve and they push you to evolve. They ask you questions because they want to be told differently over time. But it's us who don't want to change them. Our egos are like, no, no, no. I mean, if I stop stop telling you that way, then I'm not the hero anymore or I'm not the victim anymore. No, that can't be. I constructed my entire repertoire, my entire self and the self that I show everybody as this person or this victim or this hero or this invisible being or, you know, all the things that we tell ourselves that we think we are. And, and that we showcase to others and we tell others that's how I am. I've been through some crisis for like several crises for the first several years where life keeps pulling the rug of my feet and it's like, start over, start again. Like stories, start again, start again. That's not the story. Start again. Yeah, I like how I look in that paper, but I don't like how I sound when it comes out of your mouth. I'm a different version now because that paper was written 10 days ago. We've talked with these people and we've reflected on these things and I don't believe I'm a victim anymore. Or that person that I was perhaps judging and in the story is the villain. Now, 10 days passed when I had that conversation with my dad and it turns out that no, there was no villain in that story at all. And it is okay to have a story with no villains. But our societies constructed everything, and this is pretty much based on fairy tales and the Bible. <laughs> it is believed, and it was believed for so many years, that our primitive minds can only build a world of black and whites. There's got to be a villain. There's got to be a hero. And I keep wondering, do we really need one hero? Can we all be the heroes? Do we need villains? Uh, why is so needed to be a villain, to to have then this opposite here? And, and, and all those stories, unfortunately, has permeated uh, or has infiltrated our politics and uh, the way we construct our relationships. So I'm working on that on myself. So eventually I'm able to tell stories that don't have those polarizing uh, aspects because I want to eventually like humor that humor kind of shifts thing in people i want these stories that although they may not be humorous i want these stories to connect with other people's stories and give that story the power to really poke that person and say i don't want you to tell me like that anymore i want you to tell me differently you know what i don't want you to tell me at all <laughs> i'm living you human because there are stories that sometimes come and they just go like people. So I do believe stories do have life, like a little mosquito that comes and goes. And that's kind of like the relationship I'm trying to construct with the stories. And the rehearsal part has been part of, uh, of that growing, of that listening to a story. 
uh, which I sometimes think is my story. But is it? Well, stories belong to all of us. And I'm thinking of spoken revision. You were saying, oh, I wrote it this way, so I can't change paragraph three to paragraph four or switch things out. And yet there's a lot of legitimacy to the spoken revision. You're cruising along, thinking you're supposed to be saying one thing, and then you say another. And I've come to trust the spoken revision as much or maybe more than the other kinds of revision because it's immediate. It's what is necessary in that moment. So what would be an example of a little short story that you might be able to tell us that would work to give us a sense of where you are right with your stories? This is a story that I call Biscuit Story. I wrote it recently. I've attended so many storytelling festivals as a listener and teller. I noticed that some of the stories that tend to get people to, to be surprised to say that, to sigh, to kind of feel contempt in the heart. It was those stories where uh, the teller was talking about the long times ago of the good old days of my grandma and my grandpa, right? In those storytelling festivals, I was not telling any personal stories and I didn't connect with them. Uh, because to me, those stories resembled the old times that were not necessarily that good for everybody. America wasn't great always. And if it was great for some, it wasn't great for others. The minorities were not doing that great. Women were not doing that great in the 20s and 30s. Um, so to me, that's what those stories represented every time I heard those, uh, those stories. That was another reason why I began pushing so hard on telling Latin American stories. So hard that I even developed a podcast on it because I wanted people to listen to other stories and to see how those stories connected with the reality of the United States and the past that is not necessarily a very saintly past. But the problem with that is that I also develop another hatred, which I wasn't hating those stories, but I was not amused by them. And my hatred was biscuits. Because the joke that I made when I was listening to the stories with my husband was like, these are biscuit stories. At this point, I ended up hating biscuits. And biscuits is like a sacred staple in the South. And I've been living in the South for the past 11, 12 years. And I refused to eat biscuits every time they were served. So my husband, who is from Tennessee, he sacrificed himself so I could avoid the question. You didn't like your biscuits, honey? Mm, it's okay. But some people actually feel attacked when you don't eat their food, <laughs> especially that food that is the flag, the banner of a whole culture. The second part of this story is that my mother never taught me how to cook. Every time I pop my head in the kitchen, she would chase me out out of the kitchen. So I don't have any memories of my mother or any other mother figure, grandmothers, because both my grandmothers were far away. One had dementia and the other one had been shunned from the family. So I had no memory of cooking any traditional Colombian dishes or any dishes at all with any mother figure. So this takes me to um, a year and a half ago, my husband got out of the army and he was he wanted to recover from that experience. And so he took a sabbatical year. We sold our house and we moved to uh, live with his brother and his grandmother, Doris. 
She is the most established 94-year-old lady. I mean, her house resembles a southern castle. I mean, she's proper. She's tall. She's fair. Uh, she's elegant. I mean, she's everything a good southern lady should be. And I had many issues throughout the years. I met her before, and she had always been sweet and kind and nice with me, and she had always told me she loved me. But to me, it was hard to believe um, because I thought that to love someone, you need like really deep experiences. Over time, I realized, no, you don't need that deep experiences. You can love anybody just by wanting to love them. We lived with her for about a year, and it was a in a way, a very intense experience because it's these three people that are in their late 30s uh, with a grandmother. Eventually, this year, I mean, her health began declining, and so her family decided to move her to a retirement home. They moved her last October. So this is all very recent. Before she left, we had already moved out three months before to Asheville. But we were coming every two weeks to visit her during those times. Pretty much about a couple days before, perhaps even a week before she moved to the retirement home, she had been having issues with cooking. She was not cooking anymore. And the rest of us, we were not much into cooking. I would cook sometimes, but my husband and his brother were not. So we were most of the time ordering uh, from outside. But this time when she was about to leave, one day she just got up and she was like, I'm going to cook. We tried to dissuade her days before because she had been talking about it. And, and she was like, no, I want to cook. I want to cook. So that morning, my husband and his brother were out. And when I came into the kitchen, she was already pulling pots and pans. And I asked her, do you need help? <laughs> Very reluctantly on my part. And she said, like the boss she had been, she started like instructing me on what to do here and there. For the first time, I cooked with a grandmother, with someone else. While she was cooking, she was telling me her life story, she told me of her childhood in a farm. She told me of her father who was very afraid of them swimming. And so she admired me for swimming. She told me of the times when she had been a boss because, um, her husband, an accountant or something, had taken all their money, and so they were broke. And when she was already 60, she became her own boss, and she started her own business. And all that it meant to her, because, I mean, you expect for someone young to lead a business, but you don't expect someone that is after 50 or 60 to start a business to get going in life. And she did. And she had her own makeup store and it was successful. So all these stories were happening while she's telling me, teaching me how to cook all this Southern food, including the biscuits. And so that night we all came together and we sat down for one last meal in that house, one last meal with her. At some point, of course, she noticed that I hadn't touched my biscuit because I just don't eat biscuits. I don't have any good reasons anymore, but it was more like because. So she asked me, I said, like, well, I'm just getting full. But, you know, grandmas, right? They insist. And so I took a bite of it and I ate it. It didn't taste bad. It didn't taste like amazing, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Part of that is because for the first time I had a memory, a fond memory with a grandma making that. 
and that was also my connection because I had been through a crisis of feeling unrooted for so long. I mean, I left my country behind, my family, all my families in Colombia. I don't have any family members here. I had to make new friends. Everything had been behind. And in a way, I thought I, I had thought that I had adapted. Very deep in my mind, I hadn't let go of some stuff. And it was at that moment when I felt her love and I felt our love as a new family that I knew I was rooted finally here in the United States with this new family. So I've, I love my husband, but we're, it's only him and I and our dog. In my head, I didn't have that connection of family, of a grandpa, brother, cousins, and, and all this. And it was in that moment with that last meal, which I kind of regret it wasn't the first meal, but I had to come to my senses and realize in the last meal that I had a family and I had it for so long, but I hadn't been part of it or allow myself to be part of it. That's the biscuit story. <laughs> wow. I wish we had more time to go on with more and more stories. I just wanted to, to conclude by, by saying one thought about the biscuit story. The biscuit ended up being the portal into your acceptance into the tribe. Yes. into the family. It was the symbol. It became the sacred symbol of your entry point. Isn't yeah. that interesting? It is. It is. Uh, I mean, I, I still have to dig more into that story. It was, I mean, when I was writing it, I, my hand, I was trying to just not really think. It just like, mm -hmm. right, right, right. And it just came out like that. Yeah. And when I rehearsed it and it came out of my mouth, it came out like that because I guess the story was like, yeah, you finally got it, Carolina. Finally. That's <laughs> all this time. <laughs> the biscuit is your friend, Carolina. <laughs> it is my friend. Well, yes. on that note, it's time to say thank you very much for this terrific interview, which turned out to be just one, one long, fantastic story. I loved it. I had to do very little and I enjoyed every minute of it. So thank you ever so much for spending your time and energy uh, telling us about who you are and your life and your stories and, and your, your feelings about coming to America and the South. And most especially, here's to all the biscuits in the world. Yeah, here's to all the biscuits. Yes. <laughs> thank you, James. I appreciate it. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Carolina Quiroga. And we have a few minutes before the top of the hour. And Carolina reminded me of my grandmother when she was telling her stories about her grandmother. When Carolina was talking about cooking with her grandmother-in-law and making biscuits, I was thinking that my grandmother's, Roberta on my mother's side, and Grandmother Nave on my father's side, and you may be wondering why I go by Nave when my grandmother's name was Grandmother Nave. Well, my family name was Nave, still is. And years ago, somebody said, oh, you should say Nave instead of Nave. It sounds better. So it stuck, actually. And I like saying Nave because it's fun, even though I haven't turned my back on any of my family, all of whom are Naves. And funny enough, even my brother Sam changed his last name or changed the pronunciation of his last name to Nave. He now has two children and they go by Nave. So it's an evolution of the name. But Grandmother Nave and Roberta were my two grandmothers. And when I think about what Carolina said about cooking with her grandmother, 
I never cooked with Grandmother Nave, nor did I ever cook with Roberta. And in fact, I don't really remember Roberta on my mother's side ever cooking. I do remember Grandmother Nave cooking a fair amount. I do remember she lived down the road from where we lived on Pine Lane. Just a really short walk, five minutes, maybe four or five hundred feet down the road, actually. And I would go down on Saturdays and help her harvest a chicken for Sunday dinner on Saturday afternoon. And when I say harvest a chicken, I really mean harvest because we lived in the country and Grandmother Nave and her husband, we called him Pappy, had lots and lots of chickens. They had gardens, had a compost area. It was all organic, even though back then organic was not something anybody thought of. So in the afternoon on Saturday, I would go out to Grandmother Nave's house. She would go down in the backyard and she would catch a chicken and prepare it for the Sunday meal. I won't go into exactly how she prepared the chicken or exactly what we did other than to say we chased it around, caught it. And on Sunday, it appeared on the after church Sunday dinner table where all the family gathered around to eat the chicken and the gravy and the mashed potatoes and the green beans and all the other things that you cooked for Sunday dinner back in those days. And maybe people still do it to this day. So that was as far as I ever got cooking with my grandmother. I did help her catch the chicken, but she never invited me into her small kitchen to help her prepare the Sunday meal. But I do remember enjoying the Sunday meal. And even to this day, that's probably why I like to eat chicken, because I remember Grandmother Nave serving the chicken and the gravy and all of the stuff, like I said. I also credit Grandmother Nave for my taste for coffee. And I remember in the summertime, growing up in western North Carolina, it was beautiful. School was out. I would get up in the morning, and I would go down to Grandmother Nave's house, and I would read the paper, and she would serve me a cup of coffee. I was around 12 years old at the time, and I remember getting up in the morning and going down to Grandmother Nave's house. And she would have the morning paper, and it would be on the table. So I would go into the house, and she would say, would you like a, a little coffee? She insisted on pouring a half a cup of coffee and a half a cup of hot water. She said I was too young to drink a full cup of coffee, so I had to dilute it with water. So we did that. We would pour a little cream in it. I think I put some sugar in the coffee. And I would sit there at her breakfast table and flip through the newspaper. My favorite thing to do, of course, read the comics. I remember reading The Phantom, Dick Tracy, Dogwood, Dagwood, Dagwood or Dogwood, I don't remember now, and Apartment 3G. So you had four panels or five at the most for each comic strip. And some of them had a beginning, a middle, and an end. Just told a story and that was that. Others were ongoing some drama, something was happening. So each day I would go down to Grandmother Nave's house, drink my coffee, and absorb the drama from the comic strip. I think to this day that's why I like to watch Netflix series. And another thing that I acquired from Grandmother Nave in the afternoons, I would also go down to her house. We were very, very close, really, and I enjoyed visiting with her. She had a small living room with a black and white TV at the at the um, west end of the living room. And 
my grandfather, Pappy, had created a device to spin, to rotate the antenna above the house to pick up the signals from the three TV stations that we could pick up. And if my memory serves me, WLOS, which still broadcasts from Mount Pisgah in Western North Carolina, was the ABC affiliate. The Charlotte station, which I don't remember the call letters for, was CBS, and then coming out of Greenville was the NBC station. So you had ABC, CBS, and NBC, and that was that back in those days. This was during the 50s. And so in the morning, I would go out and read the Asheville Citizen Times and read the comic strips. And in the afternoon, I would return. And the reason I would go out in the afternoon was because my gra grandmother, Nave, would sit on her couch and quilt while she watched the soap operas on her black and white TV. I love to go out there and watch those soap operas with grandmother, Nave. And I think... If you put the comic strips together and the soap operas together when I was 12 and 13 years old, spending the time watching with my grandmother, she taught me, or I learned by way of sitting there, how to appreciate the series that I now watch on Netflix or Amazon or HBO. So Grandmother Nave certainly didn't teach me cooking, but she did show me how to appreciate the TV series, which I've always been grateful for. And before I go, I would like to mention Roberta, my other grandmother. Roberta graduated from Merritt College in 1916, and she came to Western North Carolina to Murphy to teach school and be somewhat of a missionary back in 1916. So by the time things rolled around to the 1950s, Roberta had had five children, and she was living in Asheville. She was working at the Asheville Health Department. And so by the time I got to know her, she was in her 50s, moving toward her 60s. And at that point, she was a poet. She was a writer. She was a woman of letters. She was also a woman who had experienced some grief. She lost one of her sons in World War II, lost another son in the Korean War. And she lived down the lane opposite Grandmother Nave's house in a large rambling house with my mother's sister, Billy, and her husband, Johnny, and their children. So I grew up on Pine Lane with two grandmothers who didn't teach me how to cook. That said, I had both grandmothers taught me a lot about how to think, how to live in the world. And just as I credit Grandmother Nave for giving me a great appreciation for Netflix and all the series that I still love to watch today, I credit Roberta with poetry. She was the one who suggested that I consider the more imaginative ways of looking at things. I have this vivid memory of Roberta telling me about the grand woman, the magic woman who is going to come across the mountains with two lions in tow and take me away into a distant far, far land. Did the magic woman ever come? No, she never really came in the sense of reality, but I think the magic woman did come in the sense of my imaginative processes. I would stand at the edge of the field and look to the mountains thinking, when will she arrive? So I suspect I can credit Roberta with giving me the wanderlust, the lust for wandering, the lust for looking around the corner, the lust for imagining what might be beyond where I can see. And on that note, my friends, we have arrived at the top of the hour, 
and I must leave my two grandmothers behind, leave Carolina's grandmother behind and all of her stories, and say to you, thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. For more on Walter's music, thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. Robin Collier, thank you for managing KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio in Taos. If you would like to reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com. It's a good place to good place to start. I would love to hear from you. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. It was once Nave, and now it's Nave. N-A-V-E. And we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing chops, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to look. So, once again, thanks ever so much for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. I hope you come back very soon. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.